Hebrews 12, verses 8 through 15, we're going to cover tonight. And uh, kind of, again, following this theme, um, just to kind of remind you, I haven't said it in a while, but this whole Hebrews series that I've been doing, again, I've really taken this from Daniel Joseph from, from Corner Fringe and kind of made it mine type of thing. But uh, I'll tell you, I, I'm just so blessed by his ministry. And, and if you guys need something to listen to throughout the week or whatever, look up Corner Fringe Ministries. Um, I, I just can't say enough good about what he's preaching. And so um, I just want to give credit to where credit is due there. But I just love it because he's just focusing on the Word of God. And uh, I think that's where we all need to keep our focus. And, you know, I try to evaluate. I, I listen throughout the week to different things. And I think, what is it about Daniel Joseph that I like so much? And it always comes back to this. Scripture, Scripture, Scripture. Whereas so many other people that I hear, it's like a Scripture and opinion and opinion and story and analogy, and story, and then a little scripture. And, and there's nothing wrong with stories. There's nothing wrong with analogies. Those are all good things. But I, I like to get as much scripture as possible. And so, um, yeah, I'll talk about some other things here as we go. But um, bottom line, uh, we're going to look at the pain of chastising here today. And the Lord's discipline. We kind of, I said last week, I just couldn't finish it in one session. And so I said this was going to kind of connect well with last week's because it's what the book of Hebrews continues to talk about. So we're just kind of following that theme of what it's saying. C.S. Lewis said this God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And in so few words, that says so much. Um, and Hebrews is going to basically lay this out as we, we see that here. So just to give you context, I'm just going to read what we talked about last week without really talking about it, but just to keep the context of Hebrews here. So if you have your Bibles open, you'll see it as well. But it said, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. And it continues... In verse 9 then, and, and we're going to pick up on verse 8 and 9 there. But Jeremiah 5.3 says this, O Lord, are, you, are not your eyes on the truth? You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to return. Ultimately, this is what we're going to be getting into in talking about the chastening of the Lord and the discipline that he gives. Last week we talked about that and we, you know, uh, tried to clarify, we talked a little bit in post-Bible study, that not all problems are because you're being disciplined or chastened. Some problems are sin in the world, the curse. Uh, you know, there's, there's many reasons, but I think we always have to be ready to ask ourselves what, you know, 
is going on in my life. Examine ourselves. Scripture tells us to do that in Corinthians. It says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. We constantly need to be doing that, searching our lives for, for that dross that needs to be removed. Because those who are disciplined need to listen. Okay? If you're not being disciplined as what James said last week, you may not be a child of God. And I never want to be in that position. I never want to be that way, but yet that's where my flesh always wants. It's like, Lord, don't let any bad things happen to me. And uh, that's not a good thing. Because those who are not disciplined, you know what that means? They're not in a state of grace. Simply put, they're not saved. I don't think that's something we hear in the church very often. That you may not be saved. We love to tell people they're saved. We love to t assure them. And Hebrews is going to get into that here, so we'll touch, we're going to come back full circle to that. But it's not, I know Paul Washer, even though I may have some things that I would disagree with him on, uh, one of the things he said, and I couldn't agree more, is, you know, Christianity is not like a flu shot. Yeah, I, I did that. Yeah, I, I got, I, I'm done. I got it. I said the prayer, so I'm in now. I'm in like Flynn. Or I, I go to church, so I'm a Christian. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Saying a prayer doesn't make you a Christian. Saying you're a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is whether or not you have been born again. That's what John says, right? Well, Jesus said it in John. What makes you, what's being born again? Even Nicodemus had a problem understanding that. Lord, how can you be born again? Surely you cannot enter into your mother's womb to be born a second time. And Jesus basically goes on to talk about this is a spiritual thing that takes place, and we must be born again. That means you're going to have a personal relationship with Jesus, and you will know if you have a personal relationship with Jesus by, well, what you do. By their fruit, you will know them. Not that your fruit gets you to heaven. It doesn't. But it's a sign that you've been paid for and bought by Jesus Christ. So, you know, to say that you don't need to worry or nothing bad is going to happen, that's a lie that I think the church has, you know, been propagating for a long time. Don't worry about it. It's okay. It's all right. Just keep living life. Jesus loves you. You don't need to change anything. We're all sinners. We, we've swept the law under the rug to the point to where it's just like, you know, you're j just don't worry about it. We're lulled to sleep and comforted to sleep, just like Satan was doing to Eve in the garden. Oh, you're... No, it's okay. You're not going to die. No, no, no. This, there's just blessings in this. Right? So, it's kind of interesting here in Jeremiah, just two chapters later in chapter 7, after saying this, where he's warning them that you received, or you refused to receive correction. You refused to listen to God's calling, his discipline, his chastening. And because of that, two chapters later 
In chapter 7, he's going to say, do not pray for these people. A while back, we talked about that. Is Are we supposed to pray for people all the time? No, there comes a point where God says, don't pray for them anymore. Now, I'm not going to get into that again since we've talked about it before, but it's just interesting in this context as well. Proverbs 15, verse 32 says, He who disdains instruction despises his own soul. But he who heeds rebuke gets understanding. So, basically, kind of like what we touched on last week, if we're experiencing troubles and trials in life, we shouldn't be blaming God in a weird way that makes me sound crazy. We should be thanking God. Lord, thank you for allowing me to go through this struggle because I know that you're going to bring some good from it. Thank you for what you're doing. I may not even see it right now, but God, thank you for what you are doing. Having that attitude, having that trust in him and his promises, having that humility to even examine ourselves and repent and say, God, you know, I, I deserve this. I know this sounds stupid as well, but I know that every time I get the flu or I'm sick, that's a prayer. I, I thank you, God, for, for making me get sick because it slows me down. It, whatever I have to do that day doesn't matter anymore. And I can just say, thank you. Thank you, God. I, I deserve much worse than this. And yet, you love me, you're here, and uh, my flesh is being put into submission right now. Thank you. So, anyway, when bad things happen, ultimately, guys, it's on us, not on God. You, you, you can't blame him. The other thing it says is, but he who heeds rebuke gets understanding. In context, and, and also here in the Hebrew, this it's much deeper. We're not talking about trivial pursuit here. We're talking about an understanding of salvation, the deeper truths, the important things of life. That's what he's talking about. He who heeds rebuke gets understanding. Wisdom, deep stuff. So when we pick up here in verse 9 of Hebrews, this is where uh, it's going to continue with this theme that I just showed you here recapping last week. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? Again, it used to be that you obeyed your mom and dad. If not, you were getting the belt, you were getting, you know, some kind of discipline. Maybe soap in the mouth, you know, or Tabasco in the mouth if my other son was here. Uh, I don't know how true that rings today for most of society. And I think it shows, too, honestly. But bottom line is that is how respect was gained. I, I'm not promoting or condoning child abuse or, you know, where things can go too far. I realize that does happen out there. But I'll tell you this, spanking a child is not child abuse. The Bible says spoil or spare the rod, you spoil the child. 
and we see that happening all the time. And if you put that human perspective in the spiritual, why should we then blame God when bad things happen? Again, we kind of touched on that last week, but Hebrews is again continuing to talk about this. And I guess what I'm saying is rather than being upset with God, it should cause us to respect him even more, to have a holy fear of him. I mean, I feared my father, not out of child abuse or anything like that, but out of absolute respect. In every good way, I feared him. I wasn't scared of dying. I was scared of getting in trouble. I, I mean, all he had to do was give me a look and I said, yes, sir. <laughs> okay. I never once, as a matter of fact, I got to be honest, I don't think my dad ever spanked me once. My mom did. I got the belt a few times from her. Okay. And honestly, sometimes it didn't even hurt. But it didn't matter. I was still getting the belt. I remember a few times starting to cry, you know, and then she'd stop, and then she'd leave the room. I was like, that one wasn't bad at all. But it didn't matter. I was still getting the belt. There was still a fear because I didn't know if it was going to hurt or not. But uh, there was a respect that was gained through that, and that's the way it is with God. We, we should have that healthy fear of God, and we have all but removed the fear of God in our world today. Why? I think it's because the law of God has been removed. So, we're going to come back to that. It goes on and it says this in verse 10. For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In other words, the pain has a payoff. To those who are trained by it is, I think, a very important part here. It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Training is something that's ongoing. Guys, we are going to be training till the day we die. There's always something I can work on in my life. You know, you know Timothy talks about physical training has some value, okay, but godliness, he says that, righteousness, that, that has, has a benefit for eternity. That's the kind of training that we should be looking to. That means reading our Bible. That means praying. That means putting our flesh into submission. That means fasting. Again, fasting is something that most churches we don't even talk about. Oh, we might give something up for Lent or whatever, and, you know, this minor inconvenience. You know, some people do that. You hear about that happening. But do you really hear in churches today about true fasting and praying and submitting the flesh, surrendering it, putting it in to that submission. I mean, I'd love to just go into an hour just talking about fasting alone because of this. Now, within Jewish, the Jewish world, you know, their festivals, a lot of their festivals include a fast day. 
different things like that. And I'll be honest, it's easy for me sometimes, oh, we're going to, you know, Tabernacles is coming, we're going to skip the fast day, we don't really do that part of it. It's so easy to skip any of the parts that make us uncomfortable and just do the parts that are fun and entertaining and educational. You know, Purim, they had three days of fasting before the celebration that we're going to do here on Thursday. Um, again, this isn't one of the prescribed things, that were, but that's what they did. Fasting is important. And we see it happening every time that Israel was repenting and needing to just like turn back to God. It was part of their repentance. It's like, I deserve nothing. I don't deserve food. I don't deserve clothing. I don't deserve anything God has given me. It's time that I stop living for myself and submit and make my flesh submit. Bottom line is training is hard. We talked a few weeks ago about, you know, just my respect for you runners in here. Because you do. You discipline the body, as Hebrews talks about. And you, you put it into submission. I'm not very good at that. I'm not good at disciplining my body. And, you know, I don't have to be a runner to do that. There's plenty of ways that we can do that, whether it be through fasting, being uncomfortable, and putting up with it without complaining. I mean... I know our kids, some more than others, will complain a lot. I'm not going to make any eye contact with any of them. <laughs> they will... Usually the wife in this family. <laughs> well, I, bottom line, though, is every time we complain, you're giving your flesh something that it wants, aren't we? And we should say, wait a minute, oh, I'm not going to complain. I'm going to take it. I'm going to take it like a man. I'm going to make this flesh submit. I'm not going to let this make me be irritable. I'm not going to let this make me be grumpy. I'm going to take it and thank God for it. Thank God that I'm uncomfortable and I'm about to drive myself nuts right now. I mean, think about wearing sackcloth, how itchy and annoying that would be. Do you think they would go, oh, I hate this. I, that. No, that defeats the whole purpose, doesn't it? The whole purpose is I deserve this. Just kind of like I was telling you before about, you know, when I get the flu. I deserve this. I deserve worse than this. If you think about training, you know, those who are trained by it, nobody does well without training. I mean, if you're an athlete, you've got to train. If you don't and you have that natural talent, you'd be much better had you trained. Whatever the case might be, training brings the success. And I, I think of King David. You read the book of Psalms. And, you know, you could read that and just think, wow, this guy had a rough life. He is constantly crying out to God in sorrow, in desperation. He has always had enemies. Even his own friends would turn their backs on him. Uh, you know, the king was after him for many years trying to, to kill him. I mean, none of us have got the problems that David had. David was trained in righteousness through the, the chastening of God. And you say, man, David had a heart after God, and yet look at all the trials and tribulations he had. Once again, like we talked about last week, this flies in the face of this name it, claim it, prosperity gospel of the devil that is being preached in churches today. Okay, that is not scriptural. So... 
Charles Spurgeon said this, the Lord gets his best soldiers out of the highlands of affliction. Think about some of the greatest influences of today and the pains that they've gone through. I think of people like Elizabeth Elliot. What a what an amazing you know uh, warrior for Christ that she was. Is did she is she gone? She's still alive. Okay, but those are just examples. The silver spoon pastors. Really, what do they accomplish outside of maybe a big church, a business? But the people who have just really, I mean, you look at the Spurgeons and the Wesleys and some of these, these uh, missionaries of the past who have gone through a lot, their life speaks volumes. Even in death, as Hebrews talked about before, they still speak. So uh, there's a lot of truth to what Spurgeon said there. Verse 11, it says, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, and I want you to see this together, verse 12, with verse 11, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. In other words, because of all of this discipline, and because you're being trained by it, we are to strengthen the hands of those, you know, who are suffering from it, who, whose heads or hands hang down, who have feeble knees. How do you strengthen them? By giving them truth. You can give them all the platitudes that you want. You can, you know, give them all the compliments you want, all the assurances you want. You can lie to them. And it might make them feel better for a little bit, but I'm telling you, there is only one thing that is going to strengthen, truly strengthen the feeble knees, and that's the truth. It might be hard to hear, but that's what's going to do it. Don't, don't give false hope. And I think where Hebrews is taking this, as you're going to see, is that this is what has happened in so many churches today, is that rather than strengthening the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, in truth, they do so in lies and deception and false hope. And I'll give you some examples here scripturally. Because I think what he's saying here isn't um, encourage people, love them. I think what he's saying is this, don't encourage people in sin. And it's easy to read this and just think, oh, we're supposed to be nice to people and encourage them and make their day blessed. It's much deeper than that, as you're about to see here. He's talking about don't encourage them in sin because look at the context. He's been talking about chastening. He's been talking about disobedience, and because of disobedience, they need to be chastened. And this is training for them, so he says, now strengthen them. How? By speaking truth into their lives, not giving them false hope that they're okay. Everything's going to be just fine. You don't need to change a thing. Let me give you Ezekiel here as an example. 
This is the work of a false prophet right here. Because with lies you have made the heart of the righteous sad, whom I have not made sad. And you have strengthened the hands of the wicked so that he does not turn from his wicked way to save his life. All through the book of Hebrews, what have we seen them doing? Quoting the Torah. Quoting the Old Testament. I don't think that here is any different. He's not saying, as I said, oh, just God bless you and everything's going to be okay. He's quoting the Torah, and the Torah's context is, don't tell them they're just fine. That this chastening, don't worry about it, it'll pass, there's nothing that needs to change. This is the work of a false prophet here. And I think that this is so timely with what we have seen in, in America as of the last six months or better. A false prophet is going to encourage those who are walking in sin. Not that they're going to say, oh, keep sinning, it's okay. But they're not going to address the sin and say, everything's going to be just fine. Just hang in there. And I've been saying this for months with all of these prophecies, the Trump prophecies that have been out there, of those who are saying Trump is going to get in and America is going to be you know, more prosperous than it ever has been before. I've never heard any of those people say you need to repent of your sins. It's always been, oh, it's all going to be fine. Just have faith. Have faith that God's going to get him in there. God's fighting for you. And that's the distinction that has concerned me so much within the churches and still going on to, to this day. There's no reason. What I want to hear is these people saying, we have murdered millions of babies in abortion. We have forgotten how to blush. We parade homosexuality through the streets and we say nothing about it. We... We uh, support pornography in the movies that we buy, the movies that we rent, that we watch on TV, the Hollywood that we support. Okay? We, we laugh at it as if it's no big deal, and we make the jokes that make light of sexual sins. We do all of these things. You need to repent you need to get down, fall on your knees in sackcloth and ashes, and you need to cry out to God in all desperation because I'm telling you, there is judgment coming. And this is the context of Ezekiel 13 here. These false prophets with lies you have made the heart of the righteous sad, whom I have not made sad. And you have strengthened the hands of the wicked so that he doesn't turn from wickedness. In other words, what's up is down and what's down is up. What's right is wrong. What's wrong is right. That's what they're doing. Don't worry. You don't need to repent. And so when that happens, they don't turn from their wicked ways, do they? Jude says this in verse 4, 1-4, it says, They are ungodly people, these, these people who have secretly slipped in among the church, these wolves that are in sheep clothing. 
He says they are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So what are these wolves in sheep's clothing, which is, you know, the Judases, the false prophets? They pervert the grace of God. Now how, it's like, how can you pervert God's grace? God's grace is a beautiful thing. Jesus loves you. He died on the cross for your sins. How do you pervert that? By saying it's for everybody and there's nothing you need to do except for just say, I want it. It makes it into, it says, they turn the grace of God into a license for immorality. A license to sin. Oh, you don't have to change. Don't worry about repenting. Jesus loves you. You're fine just the way it is. That's what Hebrews is talking about. And in so doing, you deny Jesus Christ. That's kind of an important part. Because, again, a lot of these people who are doing it, they're, they're, they're wolves, but they're in sheep's clothing. So they're saying the words of Jesus. They look like they're Christians, just like Judas looked like he was a Christian. They're in your churches. And they're the ones that are saying, no, it's fine. Go ahead, keep getting drunk. It's all right. Doesn't matter. That's really not a sin. Well, I can show you scriptures that say that it is a sin to be a drunkard. Oh, gluttony, it's okay. Gluttony, that's fine. That, you know, that it's not drugs, right? No, no, gluttony, that's a sin. I can show you that one in scripture too. There's all kinds of things. Like I said, all of us can find some things that we need to be convicted of and can improve our life with. Every one of us. Titus here as well tells us when we are not pure. Basically, grace is not even pure. Look, he says, to the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Even their mind and conscience are defiled. Let me just kind of stop there for a second. To the unbelieving, nothing is pure. In other words, <coughs> God's law, it's not pure. Don't worry about it. It's nothing. Even what is pure and holy to them, no big deal. It isn't holy. I consider the commandments of God holy. The word of God, holy. It should be treated with respect. That's why we have the Dead Sea Scrolls and so many things today is because when they would be copying the word of God, Josh McDowell used to talk about this. You know, in, in Romans it says that what advantage is there in being a Jew? He says, much in every way. Wait, where do you hear that in the church today? Much in every way. For they have been entrusted with the very word of God. Theirs are the patriarchs. Theirs the, the promises. Theirs the divine covenant. And from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ. Well, I'm going to focus on they were entrusted with the very word of God. Do you know that when they would copy, the scribes would write, I was talking with Ben earlier about you know, the inspiration of scripture. When we're talking about God's word being inerrant and inspired, we're not talking about the NIV Bible that you hold in your hand right now or the, even the King James Version that you hold in your hand. He's talking about the original manuscripts. Now, the goal of all these translations has been to be as 
truthful to the original as possible. Up until recently, more so, I, I'm going to say that's not their goal. Their goal has been politicized and everything. So like the, the modern NIV and trying to, you know, remove the gender of God and the gender of, of, of all that garbage that's crept in. It's garbage. But the bottom line is this. The goal is to be as accurate to that original as possible. When we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, I think that is one of the most important archaeological finds of all time to support that the fact that what we have in the scriptures today has, been not, it has not been corrupted. Because it is exact. 98.6% identical. And that little 1.4% difference has nothing to do with changing meaning. It had everything to do with maybe uh, like uh, the, the spelling of words like favor, F-A-V-O-R, or F-A-V-O-U-R. Okay, little things, nothing that changed any meaning. Now, the reason that it is so accurate to what we have today is because when God entrusted them with the word, they took such care and respect and honor to do so that they would write down not just like if you and I would copy down in the beginning God created, I would look at that and then I would write in the beginning God created. No, they did it this way. I, I, N, N, space, K, T, T, H, H, one letter at a time. And when they got done, they would take what they have just copied and they would count to the center page, to the center paragraph, to the center uh, sentence, to the center word, to the center letter, and they'd say, oh, it's a yod. The Hebrew letter yod. Then they would go and they would look at the original and they would look and count to the center, to the center, to the, and say, oh, yod. Yep, I did it right. And if it was, then this new one became the, the newest one that would be used in, in authority. If they messed up, then this one, because it had God's name on it, you can't throw that away. That would be disrespectful and dishonorable. So they would put it in a jar, they would put it in something like that, in a cave, to preserve it because it had God's name on it. And that's the kind of care that they took. As a matter of fact, if a king would walk in on a scribe as he was scribing things, he was not even allowed to take his eyes off of the page and to look up at the king or acknowledge his presence. As he was writing, every time he came to the word Yahweh, yod heh vav -Heh, he used a special pen to even write the name of God because even to write that name was so respectful and honorable. And yet today we take our Bibles, we bring them in, we throw them on the table, we leave them under the, uh, on the floor. We, you know, we give more respect, or at least we used to, to the American flag than we give to the very words of God. That's appalling to a Jew. Do you remember I showed you that video of uh, Ron Elberg there in Israel talking about Torah? And he said, when he said the name Yeshua, he said, oh, the, the, the name, the name, what, uh, he said, I, the only way I can describe it is when you take the Torah scrolls, and he said, you pick them up, and he says, the weight, 
It's like the world's, the weight of the world is on there. That's the respect of the Word of God. Yeah, we don't respect it enough to know it, to memorize it, to train ourselves in it, because it's too hard. Ah, I don't feel like doing that. That's uncomfortable, and I've done this three times already, and I still can't memorize it. Well, maybe you should do it 33 times. Maybe 77 times, if that's what it takes. But you see, that's too hard. But yet, you could probably give me, you know, 15 lines of your favorite movie like that. And you've only seen it, you know, three times. Or the latest TikTok. I, my family, I, they know I get, that's kind of one of my buttons sometimes. And they've been much better lately. But a, a year or two ago, I was getting really frustrated because every time we'd sit at the table, all I'm hearing are movie lines and, and whatever. And I'm just sitting there quiet being annoyed because all I'm hearing is worldliness. Foolishness. Things that are trivial and make no difference. So, I guess what I'm getting at is this. To those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. The Word of God, you don't need to give it respect. God's law, it's not holy. No. Guys, this is the Word of of God. Do you really believe that? If it is God's word, the one who created the universe in a simple, simple sentence, you know, just spoke it in, the one who just by barely moving his little pinky could send you flying into oblivion, it's his word, and we go, oh, yeah, whatever, yeah, I got a new Bible. Now, I'm just as guilty as any of you here. I, I, I mean, what I'm saying is, I want that kind of respect in my life, and maybe that's going to take some training and discipline in my life to gain that respect. To know that we don't treat his word flippantly. We need to take it seriously. Because it's that flippant attitude that we've had, which is why the law has been removed from the churches today. Oh, love. Oh, that's good. Let me tell you how good you are and how much he loves you, but hey, don't worry about any of that stuff. That's old and outdated and obsolete. Picking up on what he's saying here in verse 16, he goes on and he says, They profess to know God, but in works they deny him. By the way, this is New Testament, right? Being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. If you treat God's word and if what is pure, you don't consider as pure and holy? Look what it says. You can profess to know God, but in your works, the way you live your life, you are denying him. Just like what Jude says, denying Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. When you turn grace into this cheap thing, that's a denying of Jesus Christ. That's what Titus is saying. You deny grace. You deny the holiness of what Jesus has done for you. That's disobedient. Well, what are you disobedient to? What, what does that even mean? Well, disobedience would mean not doing something that somebody says, right? 
or expects of you? The only answer to that can be the law of God. Doing what he expects you to do, which is what Jesus says in the New Testament. If you love me, you'll do what I say. Jesus even said, you know, when those who perform miracles in his name, Matthew 7, he says, many are going to come before him saying, Lord, Lord, we perform miracles in your name. We cast out demons. We went to church every week. I said your name. I said prayers. I went to church camp. I did all of these things. And what does he say? Depart from me. I never knew you. You worker of lawlessness. Torahlessness. That's what Titus is saying. That's what Jude is saying. That's what Hebrews is saying. And I could go on and on and on. You cannot treat what is holy as if it's not holy. And I'm telling you, the word of God and his law is holy. And it has been lost to the church today. It continues here in Hebrews, going and getting back there to verse 13. Make straight paths for your feet so that when is, what, what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Okay, again, this isn't just encouraging them in love. This is repent so that you can be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. So, again, your knees are feeble. Why? Because you're living in sin. It's that simple. You're not listening to the rebuke of God. You're not listening to his chastening, to his discipline. And that word pursue here in verse 14 in the Greek, uh, it's a very strong word. It's not just like, you know, hey, look at that and follow. This is like intent pursuit, like hot pursuit. So what I'm going to ask you is what does it mean to be healed? Okay, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Well, Jeremiah, I think, helps us understand this a little more. Jeremiah 3, verse 22, he says, Return, you backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. It's basically, it's, it's worth our, our repentance. It's worth that time to discipline our bodies and do whatnot. If you know, we accept the trials that God gives us, if we face those trials, you know, some good friends of ours, uh, Jenny and Jake Stutzman, they, they, they have this ministry, um, uh, Heart of the Bison. And it's all based on, am I screwing that up? No, no, no. Okay. No, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I was asking. <laughs> they know me. Heart of the bison. The whole point of it is buffalo. When there's a bison, when when they face a storm or when a storm comes, they face it. Cows, they put their butt into it, right? Buffalo face it. They go into the storm. And so 
that's really, in a sense, what Hebrews is talking about here too. When trials and tribulations of life come, face them head on. Fight them with the word of God, with truth, with humility, with the confession of sins, with the realization that God has not left you. This is good for me and I deserve it. Return, you backsliding children. That's the key. You, you repent, you go to God, you say, I, God, I have, I have failed in my walk of righteousness. And I think that's what we need to do. And he will heal your backslidings. Guys, I, I know that I'm sure some of you have sin in your life that you're struggling with. Examine your life and say, have I really been considering God's word holy and, and pursuing it hotly to obey it? Or have I bought into my culture and what I've grown up in, oh, that, those things don't matter. It's okay, you're doing just fine. Just hang in there, it'll get better. I'm telling you, if you're struggling with, I don't care if it's pornography, if it's greed, if it's, it's lying, if it's stealing, if it's what you're watching on TV and, and you know you shouldn't, but you just keep doing it anyway, or maybe it's just, you know, living this life for you and, and comfort and enjoyment and not spreading the gospel and, and taking the Great Commission seriously. Maybe it's bitterness unforgiveness that somebody has wronged you and you are so angry with them and you cannot forgive them. I'll tell you something. Uh, Neil T. Anderson, I, he's got a, uh, I can't remember, it's Seven Steps to Freedom in Christ. That's what I use when I counsel people. And I have never seen anything work more powerfully than that one thing. Unforgiveness is amazingly powerful and evil. That whole phrase of you know, holding bitterness or unforgiveness in your heart is like basically drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. There is no truer statement. If you, I have seen people be freed like that because of counseling them and getting them to realize that they have held a grudge against this person. They've never been able to forgive them and whatnot. And sometimes I'll be talking with them and, and they know they need to, but they can't say, no, I, I just can't. And we, we, we basically pray out loud to say, I forgive this person for this specific thing and blah, blah, blah. I mean, lay it out. And sometimes they can't even say it because it, the hurt is so deep and they want to deal with it themselves. They want to hang on to it themselves. But when you get them to be able to do that, it's just like whew, freedom. It's amazing. Maybe, maybe that's what you're hanging on to. I don't know what your secret sins are, but I can tell you this, repent of it, give it to God, confess it, and let Him come in and bring the healing. You are incapable of doing it. You can't. But you need to let Him do it by first recognizing it, repenting of it, <coughs> renouncing it, and keep doing it. Keep doing it. Continuing on here in verse 14, he says this, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue holiness. What's holiness? We've been talking about it. 
It's the law of God. Torah is holiness. His word is holiness. Now, the context here of verse 14 is really, again, he's drawing from the book of Deuteronomy. And I'm going to kind of show you this here. But basically, our discipline has a goal of peace and knowledge. The knowledge of God, if we submit to that discipline. So when you're being disciplined, know on the other end of it, if you accept this rather than blaming God and doing all those things, on the other end of that discipline is peace and holiness. Deuteronomy 20 verse 10 says, When you go near a city to fight against it, then proclaim an offer of peace to it. Leviticus 19.2, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. It's no accident that Matthew 5 in the great Beatitudes is, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Right? Um, holiness. As I said, the scriptures are what define holiness. You don't get to decide what holiness is because there are people out there who will say that accepting the homosexual and their sins with it, that's holiness, right? It's holy, righteous, and good to be and practice homosexuality. Well, you don't get to decide what holy is. It doesn't matter what you think it is. What matters is what God says it is. And so the Bible defines it as basically his word, his law. Let me let scripture just do it for me. Romans 7 verse 12. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy just and good. If the law is holy, why is it being removed from the churches today? Why do we not want to talk about it? Why do you think it's left the, the modern churches today? I can tell you, because the devil knows Scripture. And he wants to rob you of that peace. He wants to rob you of the blessings of pursuing hotly righteousness. Of not treating the, the gospel as cheap grace. Not trampling on the blood of Yeshua. So, if you've allowed the Old Testament and the law to pass by you today, to let it become of no effect, how can you understand what holiness is? The church has done that. No wonder there's so many debates, even among churches today, of what's right. When you've removed what determines what truth and right is, what holiness is. So now you have churches who have homosexual pastors. Why? Well, that's still holy and righteous and God loves us, you know, whatever. No, that's sin and that is unholiness. 
Hosea says this, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from, from being a priest for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. I have heard this verse quoted so many times. Well, almost this verse. I've heard the first part of this verse quoted so many times. My people are rejected for lack of knowledge. And they make it as if you, if you are terrible at jeopardy, that's why you're rejected from God. No, he defines what knowledge is. Knowledge isn't trivial pursuit. Knowledge is the law of God. That's what the second part of that verse tells us. Hosea 6.3 says, Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. Now that you know what that knowledge is, you might be able to paraphrase this by saying, Let us pursue the law of God. His going forth is established as the morning. Same book. And he already told me he already earlier defined what knowledge was. So, just because you go to church today, like I said, that doesn't make you a Christian. What you should be doing is pursuing holiness, pursuing knowledge. Now again, for... I know you guys know this, but I have to say this for anybody who's just going to pop on and listen to this as a podcast or something. I am not talking about the law of God that you can be good enough to be saved because no one is righteous, no one is good, no one understands. All have fallen away. Together they have all become worthless. You will never be able to be good enough to get to heaven. This is not about salvation. This is about being sanctified by the word. You know, Ephesians, I love that verse talking about husbands and wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to present her holy and blameless to him as a radiant church, washing her through the water of the word. Got marriage problems? Husbands, are you... Are you making sure that there's devotions going on in your home? Are you making sure that God is the center of your discussions? Are you making sure that you are washing her with the water of the word? In, in counseling with marriage, that's one of the first things that I go to. How's, how's the word been in your, your family and in your marriage? Because that's your responsibility as a man. Because this is how you hotly pursue the knowledge of God and holiness is the word. And that's Ephesians. Wash her with, you know, with the water of the word, basically. So don't stop chasing after holiness. Don't say, oh, said that prayer, I'm in. Now let me go live my life. No, now... You just got to taste. Don't you want to have the whole meal? Chase after holiness so that you don't have to live a life where you're constantly being disciplined and chastened so that you can repent and be healed and have peace and righteousness and joy in this world in the assurance of your salvation because of what Yeshua has done. Second Peter 1.5 says, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. Again, don't just say, hey, did that, I'm in. Woo, I go to church. 
add to your faith virtue to virtue knowledge we just defined what knowledge can be right it's not trivial pursuit We're, it's much deeper than that to knowledge self-control to self-control perseverance to perseverance godliness to godliness brotherly kindness to brotherly kindness love for if these things are yours and abound you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ for he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he is, uh, was cleansed from his old sins. Oh, you've been baptized? Great. So many in the church is like, oh, great, I'll see you in heaven. You've been baptized. I could give a rip if you've been baptized and you're not walking in holiness. You see, you don't stop there. You add to your faith. How? Adding knowledge of Torah, holiness, the word of God. And by the way, you know, I know that for some, that word Torah, that's just such a foreign thing for you. I know. It's the word. It's law. That's the word. Instruction. Instruction. As a matter of fact, again, I've said this before, but again, uh, Ron, he says, we, it's not the law. It's a way of life. That's what they see Torah. Torah is a way of life. But the church and the culture we have grown up with has made law this evil, hard, difficult oppression. No, it's everything opposite of that. So, verse 9 here. He says, if you don't do that, if you're not adding to your faith the word of God and being obedient to that, chasing it hotly, he says then you really don't know Jesus. You're blind. Even here, looking at this verse, for he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness. This is what Hebrews is saying. Because now jumping back to Hebrews again here, in verse 14, pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. You're blind. If you are walking in disobedience and you are ignoring the law of God, how can you know Jesus? So, this covenant is dependent on holiness. The very covenant, I mean, we often hear Jesus did it all. I agree with that 100%. However, a covenant takes two parties. Always. There's always two parties making an agreement. Now, yes, Jesus paid for everything, but there is an aspect of it that I now walk in that truth, believe that truth, and if I truly believe it, I will be walking in it. Otherwise, you know, if you don't really believe it, you, you can you know, go live your life and whatever. You, you're not going to follow the law. But truly believing then you will do. And if you're not doing, then you're not part of the covenant. So there's such a fine line there. Um, you know, of works righteousness, of doing to be saved or doing because you're saved. But I can tell you this, Scripture says we must do something. Not to earn it, 
but as a result of it. As a result of salvation, you will do. If you do not have that salvation, you will not do. Again, I think we're not hearing this in the churches today because we've got itching ears, you know. Second uh, Timothy talks about that. I'll maybe go there in a second. It says this in Second Timothy 4.3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. In other words, there's a time coming when you're not going to put up with the law of God. You're not going to put up with Torah. You're not going to be putting up with these do's and don'ts of Scripture. I get to decide what's right. I'll decide if homosexuality is okay or not. I'll decide if it's okay for me to watch this on TV. I'll decide what holiness is. You know, it's interesting that the previous uh, verses to this here in 2 Timothy 2 is preach the word. The word, remember in the New Testament, what was it? The Old Testament. We've talked about that before. When they were on the road to Emmaus and, you know, the disciples are meeting Yeshua after he's been resurrected. And he reasons with them from the law and the prophets, those things concerning himself. None of the New Testament people had the Old, or the New Testament. The Old Testament is what they had to give the gospel. The law of God is what they had to give the gospel. And yet today is saying, no, we've got the New Testament, that's the gospel, the Old Testament's law, and we don't need that anymore. It's just so wrong. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. When it says they'll turn their ears away from the truth, uh, I was listening to Daniel Joseph today, and he was talking about the wolves in sheep's clothing that Jude talks about, and he talks about what a wolf does. And it is so applicable to the church today. A wolf is the apex of the animal kingdom in the sense when they go after something, they work together to single somebody out, to isolate them, remove them, from their protection. And when they do, then they just, they're merciless, will attack, I mean, just destroy. And not just to, to eat it. If they kill one lamb or one chicken, it doesn't matter. That one's dead. They're going after the others. They're not going to worry about, you know, eating them all. They just want to destroy and kill. And these sheep and wolves' clothing, it's kind of the same thing. What they want to do is isolate you from God, isolate you from His Word. If they can isolate you from the protection, which is what God's Word, His law is, right? You don't uh, take those things seriously. You have no respect for it. You don't consider it holy. Then you get to decide what's right, and it's just this general idea of love that the world has corrupted. Now you've been isolated from God and His Word, and the wolf is going to get you. He, was, he loves to isolate you from prayer and fasting. Okay, Because if he can keep you from taking your prayer life seriously, then the wolf can attack. Because you're weak. 
And so just in that sense, because remember when I talked about Adam and Eve, Adam was untouchable in the Garden of Eden until unrighteousness, sin, unholiness, breaking the law came in. When sin happened, and sin is lawlessness, that's how the New Testament defines sin, right? When lawlessness crept in, Adam lost his untouchableness, and Satan attacked. All the problem came. Same thing with Balaam and, and Balak. Remember, we talked about that before somewhere, where Balak hires Balaam to curse Israel. He cannot. Why? Because Israel is untouchable. They're walking in righteousness. They're holding up the law of God. Holiness. Yeah, yeah, he could only bless them, which is a good part. Yeah, it wasn't just a matter of being safe, it was a matter of being blessed. Only could bless them. And then he goes back and he says, I can't bless them, but I'll hear what? Here, here's what you do. Get your pretty women to go down in there, into their camp, so that they'll kind of start being immoral and, and disobey your laws, and they'll curse themselves. And that's exactly what happens. Israel curses themselves. Why? Because they let go of holiness. It is the same for us. The devil wants to isolate you away from those things so that the wolves can attack. Turn their ears away from the truth, and he's got you. Getting ready to wrap up here, Paul warns us of cheap grace in 2 Corinthians 6.1. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Um, you know, Galatians warned, you know, is Christ a minister of sin? He says, certainly not. Uh, <coughs> Hebrews 10, when we were back in Hebrews 10, he even talked about if we willfully sin after we have received the knowledge of the truth. He says, no sacrifice for sins is left. If you willfully continue to live in sin after you've realized what Jesus has done for you, there's no sacrifice for you. That's cheap grace. You've been deceived. You've been lied to. You think you're going to heaven? You don't have the first clue. You're going to be one of those who are going to say, Lord, Lord, I, I went to church. I don't know who you are. You're not keeping my word. Charles Spurgeon said this, if the professed convert, convert distinctly and deliberately declares that he knows the Lord's will, but does not mean to attend to it, you are not to pamper his presumptions, but it is your duty to assure him that he is not saved. Boy, I would love to hear people preaching that today. It is your duty not to strengthen the knees of the feeble who are sinning and say, oh, it's okay, it's okay, Jesus loves you. It is your duty to tell them, listen, if you're struggling with this and you can't stop and, and you're not reading your Bible and you're not, maybe you're not saved. Maybe you better examine yourself to see if you are in the faith as Corinthians tells you to do. That's our duty, he says. But boy, you preach this, oh, you're legalistic, legalism, legalism. Now this is biblical. You call it what you want, it's truth. 
Go check it out. You don't believe my word. Keep reading the scriptures. It's all over the place. Hebrews 12:14 says this. Pursue or uh, verse 15. Looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble and by this many become defiled. In other words, you know, He's basically conveying that if you think that you're okay with your relationship with Jesus, despite living disobediently to his, his commandments, uh, you're lying to yourself. Okay? I'm going to give you uh, what Deuteronomy says, basically the same thing here. But note, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Here in Deuteronomy... It says, so that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of, those na of these nations and that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. The writer of Hebrews is drawing from Deuteronomy here again. And so it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart, as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. The Lord would not spare him. Again, he's saying just what Spurgeon said. If you think that you can claim on to Jesus because you go to church and you say prayers at night, and you're saved, but while at the same time living in disobedience, he says, it's impossible. You think, well, I'm going to be blessed. I have peace, even though I follow the dictates of my own heart, even though I do live my life the way I decide to, the way I want to. I eat what I want. I say what I want. I do what I want. I go where I want. Then he says, you're just like a drunkard trying to be sober. It's impossible. He says, the Lord will not spare you. I'm going to close with the Dead Sea Scrolls um, because it's kind of interesting here um, in this part of the Dead Sea Scrolls, not Scripture. There's other things outside of Scripture from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And uh, this is something that lines up with Scripture in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It says this, Fraud and seers of deceit, false prophets basically, they have plotted a devilish thing against me to change your law which you engraved in my heart. Isn't that interesting? Jeremiah prophesied that God would put his law in our hearts. And he says, for flattering teachings. For your people, they have denied the drink of knowledge to the thirsty. Hosea defined that for us. But for their thirst, they have given them vinegar to drink to consider their mistake so that they may act like fools in their feasts so that they may be caught in their nets. But you, O oh God, abhor every plan of Belial. Remember the Pharisees said Jesus was a Belial, basically this false god, paganism. And he says, and your counsel remains and the plan of your heart persists endlessly. The plan of your heart. You get to do what you decide, right? But they, being hypocrites, plot intrigues of Belial, of the devil. They search you with a double heart and are not firmly based in your truth. A root which produces poison and bitterness is in their thoughts. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. 
and by this many become defiled. It kind of makes you think that the author of Hebrews knew that part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, I'm going to close with that. Plenty to think about, I think. Um, we'll pray and call it good.